0: PowerCast,
1: with your hosts Gene Steinberg and David Piede. So I'm reading a story in the Danger Room. The what? The Danger Room at Wired Magazine Online. Okay. All right. Mm-hmm. Okay. Pentagon preps soldier telepathy push. Forget the battlefield tactics, the combat PDAs, or even infantry hand signals. When the soldiers of the future want to communicate, they'll read each other's minds really that's right it says at least that's the hope of researchers at the pentagon's mad science division DARPA the agency's budget for the next fiscal year includes 4 million dollars to start up a program called silent talk the goal is to allow user to user communication on the battlefield without the use of vocalized speech through analysis of neural signals which means of course mind reading now I guess they're giving up remote viewing huh well, uh, I don't know.
2: Isn't this sort of another form of remote viewing, Focus psi abilities? And are they filtering out things like uh, fear? Have they figured out how to somehow filter out the emotion of fear from these communication systems? I mean, it seems to me that you have to come up with some sort of a clear advantage of this proposition you're putting forward. Because if it muddies things up, if it makes communications less precise,
1: seems to me that strategically that would be a problem. That's so, the problem I have with remote viewing because it does seem to work based on a little experiment we did. It does seem to yield positive results, but the problem I see is that it's not precise enough and it's not first, reliable should, enough. Yeah, I don't see how it. I'm sorry, I'm chewing on a on a muffin here. So, okay. So, yeah. ladies and gentlemen, David Biedni is chewing on his favorite muffin. No, yeah. not my favorite muffin, just a muffin. Okay. Yeah. And sometimes
2: we we end up doing the show in weird hours, and so it'll fall
1: occasionally in a window where I'm eating. So, you know. Well, Well, we have, of course, Greg Bishop on a couple of weeks ago, and guess what he was doing? He was eating. Right. But I forgot about that, but I'm not doing it to somehow emulate him. I hope not. No, I'm not. This is, I'm eating on my own accord. Okay, so you're eating your own Accord? Now, an Accord's a Honda, right? I thought we, you are talking about a muffin, not an Accord. Correct. And you'd have to get that French guy who eats things like uh,
2: bicycles and airplanes. He could eat a Honda.
0: Hmm.
2: No, I'm serious. There's a French guy. He eats things. Okay. Metal stuff. Right. Years ago, I, I saw him in Caracas, well. He's in the Guinness Book of World Records. People, for years, didn't believe me when I'd bring this up. They'd say, yeah, sure, that guy exists. It's like, no, really, he does. He does. He's a crazy Frenchman. And he's in the Guinness book. And, and, in fact, I think the picture in the Guinness book for years had him with a, a spokes of a bicycle wheel in his mouth. Very dramatic. But he won't eat a Chrysler. Hmm. No, he says that those give him acid indigestion. They don't go down very well. Maybe they go down too well. I always thought he should eat a Mac. Yeah, a man eats his apple. See, years ago, I thought this would make the greatest, for the greatest stunt Apple ever pulled. You take out a full-page ad in the New York Times, a man eats his apple. People be like, what? And you have this guy show up in midtown Manhattan, sit down with the latest, greatest Mac, with his little uh, uh, jigsaw thing that he has, and he cuts it into little pieces and he eats it. <laughs> Apple, I actually called someone at Apple to pitch that to them as an idea. They didn't think too highly of it. I think, actually, they didn't believe this guy existed. And I wasn't involved with paranormal stuff then in any public way. I, I, I actually literally called up a guy I knew at Apple and said, you, gotta, you guys have to do this. And he's like, come on, this guy doesn't exist. You're making this up. I said, no, I'm not. He's in the Guinness Book of World Records. Check it out. The guy ate a Cessna light aircraft. I think he could handle like a 128K Mac. No problem.
1: Mm. And you can get those pretty cheap now. You know, 128K Macs are worth, what, $25? That much? Yeah. No, you can get those for free, I think. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Unless, now, you know. now, I understand here, you know, looking at this story, getting back to the story about using telepathy, DARPA mm-hmm. is also trying to map monkey brains. <laughs> so we're going to have monkeys in the Army now? What are you, what are you talking about? Map monkey brains. Well, I don't know. I understand they have a few left in the Republican Party. Ooh. Boom. We're going to get emails now. People are going to complain. About politics. liberal? are those, we're those,
2: we're those liberal, we're those liberal
1: uh, bastards. That's what they'll say. Oh, I won't do that. I take yeah. it back. I didn't mean to say that the Republicans had people who had monkey brains. They just eat monkey brains, like in that Indiana Jones movie. I was thinking of that, yes. I knew you were. I'm okay. telepathic. I read your thoughts. You went to DARPA. You were educated by DARPA. No, no I just, I just read your thoughts. It has nothing to do with DARPA. You know, it's interesting to be semi-serious here before we go into our interview for today. Something that was mentioned on the episode that we did with the listener panel, you know, Uh we had five of our listeners and I wonder how many people out there, if you go up to them quietly with assurances that you're not going to repeat what they say to any third party, you say, did you ever have a UFO sighting or a paranormal experience? I'm willing to suggest that a large number of people, if you get them within a comfort zone, will say, yes, they did. Uh
2: Well, sure they will. Uh, they'll misinterpret all sorts of things to be paranormal experiences especially if they have very heavily indoctrinated religious backgrounds i think i think a lot of those people are more prone to
1: interpret things based on a religious framework oh yes but i think a large portion of these people do have experiences that are strange sure legitimately strange not the interpretation so much Well, but some.
2: this is where we keep coming back to the percentage game. So you have people who have experiences, and of those people who think they have paranormal experiences or anomalous experiences, there's some percentage that do, and there's some percentage that are misinterpreting things that are happening to them based on all sorts of conditions and elements and and conditioning issues. So what's the percentage? And I think that that's one of the things that, uh, is a useful exercise, ultimately, to to look at the whole body of data and say, all right, what part of this are misinterpretations of things? What part of them, these reported experiences, are indeed paranormal, anomalous? Choose whatever label you like. And um, then from there, hone down and try to get some handle on, you know, between people's different experiences, what are things that are similar? I think you're right, though. I think if you if you stop and really ask people... In a sense, where they feel that there is some discretion going on and some confidentiality, uh, more likely than not, people are likely to to agree that they've had a paranormal experience. But again, uh, you have to look at the framework in which their experiences come from, and realize that you know there are some people who might have a paranormal experience who then interpret it as a religious experience, and to them, it's no longer paranormal, they would say to you, they might claim at that point it's supernatural. And and maybe something genuinely odd has happened, but they're choosing to understand it in, via the filter that they've put in place to understand things that don't fit into a normal worldview. And I think that this is what ends up happening with things like extreme skeptics or debunkers, that they come from a completely you know, Newtonian, Cartesian, very, very uh, um, sort of materialistic viewpoint. And if things don't fit those preconceived notions, I mean, they won't even consider them. And one of them, one of our members put up an interesting link up on the forums, not that I participate in the forums anymore. And I want to just clarify something. I still read the forums. I'm just not posting. And so I think people should understand that I am still looking at what's going on because uh, there's some interesting information. I'm just choosing not to be interactive with the whole thing at this point. But there was an interesting link to a, um, a video, and I don't have the link right in front of me, but it was about interpretation of things, and I think it was called misunderstood, or, what was it? Misunderstanding, or something along those lines. It was basically a very interesting video about what skeptical thought really consists of, what its real definitions are. Um, but I, I think that when you deal with human beings, the issues of perceptions come into play, and it's very hard to be objective with subjective creatures.
1: Indeed. In fact, to some degree, maybe what we perceive to be UFOs are also being processed in a way where the actual event is something we can't understand. I think of that scene in the movie Contact where the Jodie Foster character sees her father when she's communicating with the alien being because the alien being says you would she not be able act- to... She a- sees an actor, not her father. It's an actor. Well, we understand that, but just the concept being that the alien is saying to her you would not understand or be able to accept the way we really are, so we're presenting ourselves in a way that is acceptable to you. It's all about us is what you're saying. Of course. We're filtering it, and or maybe they're filtering it for our sake. I don't know what kind of filtering. Speaking of filtering, before we move to our next section, can you tell us about the guest we're about to talk to? Mm.
2: No. I will say that uh, this person reached out to us and asked to come on the show. So, for our listeners that are going to uh, give us
1: a hassle about this, it's not our fault. (laughs) Coming up next, I think, on the Paracast. I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. Are you ready to order the official Paracast T-shirt, you asked? We answered. We're now taking orders for the official Paracast T-shirt. It comes in white, 100% cotton. The front of it features the same logo that we have on our community forums. On the back, it says, Separating Signal from Noise. It's just $14.95 plus shipping in your choice of sizes. To order the official PowerCast T-shirt, here's all you have to do. Visit our new online store at store.theparacast.com. One more time, that's store.theparacast.com. You can use a major credit card or PayPal to place your order for the official Paracast T-shirt. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and Gene and David. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com.
0: Hi, this is Don Ecker, and you are tuned into the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. Hey, let me tell you what. You're going to hear stuff here that you probably won't hear anywhere else. Hear that, George Snorri?
2: We're joined this week by L.A. Marzulli, who is an author and a researcher looking into the uh, UFO phenomenon. We usually have to start interviews, uh, Lynn, by asking, how did you get involved in the field? So I'll put the question to you. how did you get involved in this uh, in this topic?
0: Well specifically with the um, with the UFO uh, phenomena, um, I had a friend that came up to me, oh, probably at least twenty five years ago, maybe longer, and uh, and asked, you know, what about life on other planets?" And I had no answer to him. Um, for him, uh, I just kind of went, mm, you know, that's that's interesting. What about life on other planets? I had read C.S. Lewis's uh, space trilogy, um, that Hideous Strands Out of a Silent Planet, and Paralendra, which uh, fascinating books if you've never read them. We're just he's he sort of answers the question. But uh, anyway, this led me to a bookstore, and I, I was able to procure a book entitled The Omega Conspiracy by Dr. I.D.E. Thomas who in turn referenced a man by the name of G.H. Pember, who wrote back in the latter part of the 1900s, or 19th century, I should say, 1850s, 1876, somewhere in there. Um, both of these guys really knew their stuff, and uh, they were sort of my mentors, and both books served as a primer. Uh, for my paradigm and the way I view or my worldview and the way I view the UFO phenomena. I don't believe it's extraterrestrial. I believe it's interdimensional. And, you know, Jacques Vallée also leans towards that and, and other researchers in the field. Um, I also think that most of it is incredibly malevolent. We're looking at stuff that, uh, and we can get into that later. If you just break it down, you know, strip it down and expose it for what it is, it's like, you know, who wants to go through any of that? And I'm talking specifically about mutilations or the abduction scenario and, and you know, all the different uh, ramifications that go with those things. But that's really how I got into it. And then from that um, spawned the, the Nephilim Trilogy, which was picked up by Zondervan Publishing House. And uh, you know there's like something like twelve, thirteen hundred pages of, of uh, writing there. and uh, that netted me an honorary doctorate from my mentor, Dr. ID.E. Thomas. Who is the author of the mega conspiracy? Like I mentioned, you know, I actually interviewed him and showed him some of my research. One thing led to another, and that's where I received an honorary doctorate. And I'm really proud of that. You know, does it mean I went through all the classes and have all the credentials as a as a guy who would, you know, let's say take all those theological classes? No, I don't, obviously. But I've certainly done the homework and the research. And now with with uh, I'm working on book number six. Book number four was uh, Politics, Prophecy, and the Supernatural. I think I gave you guys a copy of that. And, of course, five was The Alien Interviews, which is uh, 17 hard-hitting interviews that talk about the UFO phenomena for people who have actually experienced it. So um, and that's in the book I'm working on now, it has to do with 2012. So um, I pretty much do this full-time. It's what I do. I'm either on the radio, doing research, uh, blogging, reading, or writing, you know, some, something like that. Or running my daily three-mile jog. So.
1: All right. So now, you're right while you do your three-mile jog.
0: There
2: you go. <laughs> now actually, uh, Lynn, the book that we got was The Alien Interviews. Okay, great. We'll stick right to that then. Okay. So a lot of our guests who come on have gotten in, interested in the field because they've had personal experiences with UFO sightings or interactions. So, do you have anything like that in
1: your background?
0: Yeah, I actually do. I've had I've had two sightings, and they're they are literally decades apart. One fairly recently, uh, and the other one when I was about 12 years old. Let me do the, the earlier one first, and mm-hmm. we'll go from there. The earlier one uh, has all the hallmarks of a of a classic UFO sighting. I was with three other boys, so it was a total of four of us, and we were taking a shortcut to lunch. We were trying to get to lunch early, so we were taking a shortcut through this ravine to get to camp, so we can get our hot dogs or whatever. And it was a very clear day. It was either in the spring or in the fall. I'm not sure which. But just a gorgeous day, not a cloud in the sky, and we're walking up this ravine, and this is at a place called Camp Horseshoe right in Rising Sun, Maryland. By the way, the camp is still there, and the actual trail I used, I found it on a map. So, uh, you know, I, I can take you right to the spot. I'm sure it's changed a little bit over the years, but I can take you to the spot and show you where I saw the thing, which uh, was kind of neat when I discovered that online. Anyway, we're walking up this thing, walking up the ravine. I'm the last boy in line, and I hear, wow, what's that? And the other two boys in front of me go, yeah, what is that? And I go, where? They go, there. And they point, and we're all looking at this thing together, literally, it's the classic silver disc, the classic silver disc, sitting there, you know, way up sky, but close enough to where it's not just a light. It's not blurry. It's, it's obviously metallic. The sun glints off of it a couple of times. It's, it's noiseless, not a sound. We watched this thing for maybe 20, 30 seconds tops. You know, and, and my memory on that is, is, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to pin down. If, if I was in a court of law, they said, Mr. Marzulli, you know exactly how, how, how long did you see that? It's anywhere from let's say, 10 to 30 seconds, somewhere in that window. And I realized, you know, when you're watching something like that, time almost just, you know, doing bong, bong. That's a second hand. It just seems to just slow way down. Stand so still it, then. Yeah, it really did. was sure. so between 10 and 30 seconds, and we watched this thing absolutely mesmerized. As we were looking at it, it just shot up straight up into the air, literally. I mean, just at, like so quick you could barely follow it with the eye. Just straight up in the air. We went, whoa. And we go running back to camp. We saw a flying saucer. We saw a UFO. And everybody's crowded around. So we're all excited to tell them the story. By 6 o'clock that evening, the other three boys recanted that they had ever seen anything. And the rest of the weekend, I was totally ridiculed because I would not back down. I knew what I saw. That Why the did they case. back
1: down? Were they being basically no, being criticized? Ridiculed. Okay.
0: Yeah. It's the same same exact thing that we see today, although it's gotten a little bit better in the last year and a half. A little bit better. We can get into that more. It, there's, there's sort of a Glasnost, which is, you know, the former uh, president of Premier of Russia, the former Soviet Union, uh, Mikhail uh, Gorbachev, talked about Glasnost and Perestroika. There's sort of an openness now. There's more of an acceptance. You can talk about it. I mean, heck, Larry King has done specials, Fox News had Edgar Mitchell talking about uh, Roswell and the fighting. So it's not like it's just blatant ridicule, which is what we used to get. You know, which is why no one would ever come forward, because if they did, they'd be blended as a as a kook or a wacko or whatever. And look, if, if we got one or two sightings a year, I wouldn't be talking about this stuff. But we get 300 to 600 sightings per month globally. Guess what, folks? The phenomenon is real, it is burgeoning, and it's not going away. It's time to deal with it, time to talk about it openly, and not be afraid, and and not be afraid of ridicule, and not have ad hominem attacks against those who are, trying to find out what this thing really is and writing about it, which I've uh, received quite a few of those, as I'm sure you can well imagine.
2: When Larry King does a show and he'll have on someone like James Fox or or Captain Robert Salas, at the same time he'll have on people like Bill Nye the Science Guy or Seth Shostak or Magaha. And I think anybody who watches the show would probably say, Well, in those situations, uh, these debunkers, professional skeptics, are are clearly mocking, ridiculing the whole topic. Right. So when you say it's not being ridiculed, how do you mean?
0: Well, it used to be a a broad brush. It used to be a blanket. Um, If if you stepped forward and said something immediately, the news media would like tug-in-cheek, oh, the little green men again. And what we see now is that in some circles we see a little bit, of an opening, for instance Larry King, uh, after the Stevensville Lights recited in the beginning of two thousand and eight, he de- he dedicated an entire show to it. He had but he had um, George Nourian, he had the former governor of, of uh, Arizona, Fife Symington, who actually came forward and stated for the first time publicly and apologized to his former constituents that he was in Phoenix, it was a craft that was not of this world. So that was a bombshell that he dropped. Um, Edgar Mitchell recently has come forward and, and stated that Roswell was real, the governments are hiding something, it's time for full disclosure. Uh, Fox News Channel. Um, interviewed him. That statement was on the Drudge Report. Uh, when, when Mitchell came out with that statement, it was on Kerrang Radio. It was basically international news. And, you know, what do you say to a former Apollo astronaut? On the other hand, I've been on shows, one which I'll never go back on, where the, the show host set me up. And, you know, no matter how much evidence, just like you're saying, no matter how much evidence you bring to the table, it's never quite good enough. Oh, well, it doesn't meet his little standards of, of what evidence should be. And, and and that's the problem with it. When you get guys like that who are really disingenuous and are more interested in just ridiculing someone, like you say, or pooh-poohing all the evidence. There's so much evidence out there, not only from the eyewitnesses, but we now have certain trace evidence that's cropping up and that we're seeing specifically from the crop circles. But, you know, look, there's a guy called Dr. Roger Lear, who I interviewed for the Alien Interviews. He came on the record, very riveting interview, and if your listeners are interested in getting that, go to my website. Uh, it's net. but but Roger Lear comes on, and he's actually gone in and taken out the implants from people. And no, he he's been on our best
1: show best twice. I just There you go. So you, guys, know you
0: know, so your listeners are hip to who he is and what he's about. Fascinating man, fascinating stuff. So
2: When you look at the history of people talking about the topic, um, there are some people who, who feel, uh, and, you know, understand, we're trying to promote sober, serious discussion on this topic, because we do feel strongly that there's something going on. Mm -hmm. Uh, At the same time, you look at uh, Dr. Edgar Mitchell, uh, he pops up about every two years. This has been going on for maybe 10 years now. He'll pop up and sort of make the same statements. It's important to realize, and I think certainly most of our listeners do, that uh, Dr. Mitchell, uh, a highly celebrated Apollo astronaut, has never claim to actually see a UFO. So mm-hmm. he talks about things from sort of the second-person second, uh, second person perspective, third-person perspective of, you know, well, I've heard things, and that's great. At the same time, uh, you have astronauts like Gordon Cooper, who had seen UFOs, had some rather remarkable encounters with UFOs, and went on the record with these things years ago. So if you analyze the media coverage, I think it's probably accurate to say that um, there have been people involved in the research for many years uh, in terms of trace evidence Uh, Ted Phillips has been doing phenomenal work in the field, really important scientific work for what, over 30, 35 years and he's gathered hundreds of cases worth of of hard evidence, real stuff and yet actually interestingly enough he's one of the people you don't see featured on things like the Larry King show Yeah. So, so uh, again, trying to let's just set the stage here that certainly, if we look at the history of sightings and reports and people coming forward, I think it's probably accurate to say that there's been a fairly consistent number of people over the years coming forward claiming uh, sightings. Certainly, we have you know mass sightings. We have cases like we recently talked about the Rendlesham Forest case in 1980. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, highly, highly. Respectable case, very credible witnesses. Uh, And this was, you know, almost 30 years ago. You know, we have these things that have been going on for a long time. Right. And it seems like, if anything, the media coverage is cyclical. So that you'll have, you know, an area where there's a bunch of sightings, let's say, like in Mexico City in the early 90s, there was a significant wave that started. And that actually broke through. And there was on cable television at the time some pretty significant media coverage of it. Now, what you didn't have in 1990, for example, or 91, was the internet. So, you know, maybe now, maybe what you're perceiving is now that we have the internet, there maybe is some some more expanded or just more voluminous coverage of the topic.
0: And, and I would I would certainly concur that the internet has changed the landscape of it, has changed the playing field. Um, you know, look, I can blog five days a week about anything I want to blog about, and, you know, people can go there, and we're getting quite a few hits, and it's a great blog, and people... You know, and, 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 and enjoy it, and I talk about a variety of subjects, but I really focus on the whole UFO phenomena. And I don't want to get bogged down in as to whether the media is, you know, in my opinion, I think there's, there's, a, there's sort of a glass knob. There's sort of an open, more of an openness now than I've ever seen, in my opinion. There's more of an openness. Now that's not, I'm broad brushing here with a bit of a broad brush perhaps, but I see more of an openness. Specifically, last year the UK came out with its, uh, you know, some of its declassified UFO files, and you know, all that ran on major main you know, mainstream news news outlets. Drudge Report carried it, Fox News CNN, I mean everybody carried that thing. Granted they only did it for twelve hours and what was amazing is they actually I don't know if you guys saw this or not, they had the pilot that um chased this thing decades ago. And now he's like, you know, he's an elderly gentleman and he comes on the record and he says, yeah, I was there. And the thing was as larger than an aircraft carrier. And right before I was ready to, you know, fire on the thing, it took off at exceeds of 20, speeds in excess of 20,000 miles an hour. Now, I mean, that's, that's huge. You've got the UK releasing classified documents. You've got the pilot right next to them and no one blinks. Nobody blinks. I mean, it's just, I mean, it's astounding when you think about it that people that, that, you know, all over the world are so numb, you know, so asleep at the wheel that that, that something this profound gets released. And it's, it's in the news cycle for 12 hours. And everybody kind of rolls over and goes, well, who's on American Idol this week?
1: Business travel was a profitability killer, you know that. So do more and travel less with GoToMeeting, the easiest, most affordable online meeting service. With just a click, launch sales presentations, training sessions, product demos, or collaborative sessions right from your desk. GoToMeeting is so easy to set up and use, you'll have your first meeting running in seconds. Plus hold as many meetings as you want for one flat rate. Free VOIP and phone conferencing included try go to meeting free for 45 days for this special offer you must visit www.gotomeeting.com slash podcasts that's www.gotomeeting.com slash podcasts for a free trial you've entered another dimension
2: You've entered the Paracast. Why?
1: talking to la marzulli and he is a ufo and paranormal researcher he has a site called la where dot net. Got net well excuse me that's okay that's all right because they took the dot com you know i know how they do that they yeah exactly
0: got, what happened a friend that took the god <laughs> was he
1: was he really a friend though yeah he, there that, you go that's <laughs> it he
0: proved it didn't he
1: indeed Now, one thing you dropped in earlier, because we're covering a lot of ground, of course, that we've covered over the past three and a half years on the show, Mm -hmm. and that is about the basic fundamentals of UFO reality. But you're saying that there is a negative or malevolent aspect to it. And maybe we should begin to focus a little bit on that. Why do you think that it's a negative thing? Do you think there are bad space people out there? What?
0: Well, let me let me lay some of the foundations from this. I go back, and my worldview is a is basically is it it comes from ancient manuscripts, okay? And studying these ancient manuscripts, I have come to a conclusion that, that what these beings are are, in fact, the Benio Elohim, and I'll get into that and and give you the translation of what that means. It stems from the book of Genesis, specifically uh, chapter 6, which talks about the Benio Elohim, the sons of God, seeing the daughters of men coming to earth, having sex with them, and that the union Produced a hybrid, and that hybrid was called the Nephilim, or the Nephilim. The Nephilim literally were the reason for the flood. When we examine the book of Enoch, which is granted as a book, means that we're not sure who really wrote the thing, um, it's, it, but it's attributed to Enoch, and I'm speaking specifically of only Enoch 1, the very first book. Okay, not the others that came afterwards, just the ver- Enoch 1. And it's sort of an amplification of the Genesis 6 story. It actually gives some of the names of these fallen beings, these so-called sons of God that come to Earth. What's interesting is other authors, such as Zechariah Setchin and History Channel, just did a uh, two-hour special called Ancient Aliens, which basically the same areas of study that I've looked into but they refuse to go down the one road that, of course, I travel on, which has the answers, in my opinion. Sitchin says that that, were, that we were visited by ancient gods. And he, he points to, let's say, the Nazca Lines, the Baalbek Temples, sudden uh, civilization cropping up, let's say, in Egypt, that the Sphinx, in fact, would be ten or 12,000 years old. Who really built the pyramid? Blah, 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 okay. So that being said, um, Sitchin believes that it's all extraterrestrial I would differ I, I believe it's all interdimensional What do I base that on? I base that on not the ancient Sumerian clays But let's say that um Sitchin talks about I base it on uh, these ancient manuscripts Specifically Genesis 6 and the book of Enoch And others uh, Josephus, the first century Jewish historian who talks about the, neph- the Nephilim And that the bones of the Nephilim Were actually openly displayed In the city of Jerusalem before it was destroyed So we also know, in, in, in our culture, uh, we always talk about David and Goliath. Well, Goliath was a Nephilim, so we know that this thing happened. Um, Steve, Clark, All right. how do we know that? We're just taking folklore, aren't we? No, we're not. Okay. We actually have skeletons skeletal remains and we also have you see this is the deal if you you know we say it's it's mythos and why should i believe one mythos story over another but when we get to nephilim let's say and talking about the nephilim from the book of genesis from the book of jubilees from the dead sea scrolls from first century josephus we've, we've got multiple sources all talking about these things it, it's no longer mythos, in my opinion. Now, I can't take a phone crew back in time, but what I can do, um, and Steve Quayle has done this in his book, and he talks about that these giants were in fact real, that the skeletons have been found, and the Smithsonian had a nasty habit of, of running in, it's, it's scraping up the bones, putting them in boxes, having everyone sign national security uh, papers, and off they go with the stuff and it's never seen or heard of again. Um, I would highly recommend Quayle's book and, and read it. I mean, if, if we go back, let's say, to where the Americans began to move across the western the, the the midwestern states and they would come on these mounds and they would open up these mounds and they would find skeletons and you know yeah you can go on the internet and look but this it's fairly well documented that some of these skeletons um had six fingers, six toes, double rows of teeth. They did not have black hair like the American uh indigenous people, First Native people. They had red hair and they were often, often very tall. Some some as tall as twelve feet. The stuff is there but I believe it's been suppressed because it totally, it points to another time and it points to the unthinkable. And it's even been repressed, this whole idea of a Nephilim and the sons of God, i.e. fallen angels, having sex with the women has actually been repressed by the Christian church for the last 2,000 years, for the most part. It's been really brushed aside. So, which is why I'm, I'm viewed sort of as, a little, he's a little outside the box here, um, in Christian circles, let's say. And churches don't invite me to speak because what I open up is a whole theological can of worms, so to speak. But it, it's well-founded. Um, it, I'm not pulling rabbits out of my hat. I try to build it you know, stone by stone, line by line, point by point. Okay, so, but
1: you're talking about giants here. And the so-called aliens that people reportedly see now tend to be the smaller gray-skinned creatures. So yeah, why I'm the going, difference? Okay. Yeah, there's a leap. Okay, let's But leap. I've
0: got to set the stage for the leap before I take it so you guys can follow me. These fallen angels, okay, and when I talk about that, you got to unhook yourself or uncouple yourself from your preconceived religious belief system. Now, I'm not saying, you know, throw it out the window. I'm just saying that if I start talking um, about, let's say, fallen angels, you may have a picture in your head. I don't know what that picture is. You may have heard things about them or you may have a preconceived notion about what these beings are capable of doing. Let me say this, these beings are incredibly powerful, they're super intelligent, and they're crafty, and they're incredibly malevolent, in my opinion, which is why they've fallen. It speaks of a time in this other dimension which we only get glimpses of, there seems to be a battle. There seems to be a war. I'm not going talk about that all, all morning long, literally. But there, there's a war between these forces. The Dead Sea Scrolls talk about the sons of, God, the sons of darkness and the sons of light. Same type of thing. Um, these beings are capable of great mischief. It was, in my opinion, it was the reason for the flood. One of the things that they did in order to gain access to the population, which is told very specifically in the Book of Enoch, was it was a quid pro quo arrangement. It was something for something. They promised these fallen angels, showed and dazzled early man technology. That's what they showed them. Albeit it was it was primitive technology by our standards today. But nonetheless it was it was um, a look into things that, that early man had never dreamed possible. All right? And for that they had access to the women. What is that mirror? What does that sound like? What is, and UFO lore, what have we heard before? What do we, you know, and can I prove this? No, I can't. But those stories echo down in the last 30 or 40 years, talking about that there was, our government entered into some sort of a trade with these so-called extraterrestrials, giving them access to the population, controlled access for technology. Same type of deal. And, and, and I found that, you know, is, is it a link? It's a possible link. But what we see in, in the UFO phenomena is, First of all, the greys are not fallen angels, all right? That's not what we're looking at, and they're not giants. Uh, grays in my opinion are something else. We can get into that later if you want to. But if we, if we strip it down and expose what the UFO phenomena is, there are, there are a lot of similarities in my opinion between what happened in Genesis 6 and in the book of Enoch and what's going on now. There was a bleeding program that was happening back in Genesis 6. That same bleeding program as Dr. Jacobs will attest to, and I interviewed him in the alien interviews, The same exact type of breeding program is happening now, and these so-called extraterrestrial beings pay great attention to it. So this whole reproductive deal that we see in Genesis 6 and talked about in the Book of Enoch is mirroring itself today. We also have a very enigmatic phrase uttered by a first-century rabbi, and this guy was was, uh, very much a prophet. Very, very much a prophet. In fact, so far his prophecies have been, have been 100% accurate. And he talks about, and he sort of points to, he says, um, when I return, it will be like the days of Noah. That's what he says. Which immediately begs the question, what differentiates the days of Noah, and I'm talking Noah and the flood, from any other time in history? And you could say, well, the flood. Well, that's, that's not what he's pointing to, in my opinion. He's pointing to, uh, the presence. The manifestation of the Baniyahu Elohim, the sons of God, the fallen angels, once again manifesting on the earth. Are they manifesting in exactly the same way they did thousands of years ago? No, it's different. But the deception is there. And you couple that with other prophecies, which I study. Um, one of them particularly is that, that men fainting from fear from what is coming on the earth, that the elect would be deceived if that were possible that this uh, Luciferic, Satanic being, when he comes, will come with all fine and lying wonders to deceive many. So this is what I write about. This is what I talk about.
1: Okay, think, now one thing uh, I wanted to ask you, because you keep saying interdimensional, why assume it's interdimensional rather than extraterrestrial? It's possible maybe that they're traveling here by warping space, which might be some kind of dimensional travel. That's, of course, just making a few assumptions.
0: Well, and and that and that's very interesting. You know, we 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 often hear that they're from the Pleiades, let's say, in the Pleiades star system. I believe that these are fallen angels masquerading as so-called extraterrestrials. I believe it's a setup for what I call the coming great deception, uh, which I write about and talk about incessantly. When you look at what these what these entities do, and then then let's say let's let's look at what they talk about, what they what the abductees report back to us, what they're told. Um, in, in my opinion, it's very alarming. Uh, when you're grabbing the middle of the night. Against your will, uh, that's kidnapping, by the way, um, in pretty much every culture that I'm aware of. And, um, you know, you're hustled into a ship and then you're um, experimented on in a sexual and often very painful way. These are all crimes. These are all things that human beings find abhorrent, and there's a climate of fear aboard these ships. And I've talked to several abductees. Uh, there's a climate of fear. I mean, and these beings thrive in the fear. They seem to feed off the fear, which is why the people that are abducted aren't put out. You've got these horrible genetic experiments, sexual experiments happening with people literally against their will. They're being abducted. They're redeposited. And you talk to some of these people and their lives are just a shambles. There's not a lot of good coming out of it. Same thing with the catamutilations. It's very deliberate. I mean, if you're going to take a cow. A 1,500-pound bull or something, and you're going to mutilate it. Why not just, you know, drop it a couple of thousand miles away or something? Why put it back into the farmer's field? And there's one one particular incident which UFO hunters talked about fairly recently, and and the bull was dropped into in the six inches of new snow. Okay. And there's no footprints around this thing, and there's no blood in it. But the things were mutilated. The anus is cored out, the eye is cored out, the tongue is cored out. Surgical precision, no footprints. No okay, blood. but
1: why do you do that? I mean, where is the logic to be like Star Trek for a second? Where is the logic in mutilating cattle? What is the purpose for that? You know, is it malicious mischief? What is it?
0: Well, what do you, what do you think? When, when you look at the farmer, um, he's getting out of the business. What does it create? If you came upon that cow in the morning, what would it create in you? It would create fear. It goes back to the currency, the currency of these beings, what they travel in, what they move in, what they see off of is fear. That's what they create. And what, what greater fear is to walk in and see a prize bull mutilated and mutilated in such a sadistic, horrible way that, you know, I mean, it, these people are freaked out. When you talk to the, when you, and look, in the alien interviews, you know, I did a, a thing with Chuck and, and Stan Moser. I mean, they had a cattle ranch up in Oregon and these guys went through this stuff and, and, you know, it's very unnerving, very, very unnerving. It's deliberate. It's deliberately done to say two things. One, we can act with impunity and you can't stop us. Two, just be careful we don't do this to yourself, to you. And we've we've got cases of human abductions and human mutilations which are very you know, very few and far between, but they're there if you know where to look.
1: Well if they're that advanced though, wouldn't they just simply come down here and take us over and stop the shenanigans mm-hmm. Fate Magazine is proud to be celebrating its 60th anniversary and its 700th issue. That's 60 years of bringing you true reports of the strange and unknown. Fate brings you the latest on all aspects of the paranormal, like angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, and much, much more. It's bigger and better than ever. Subscribe now by calling 1-800-728-2730 or online at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney You never know what's going to happen next. We're talking to L.A. Marzulli. If you go to lamarzulli.net, you'll find more about his writings. Okay, so the question being here, sir, is, all right, if the aliens are doing this, why do you spend two or three thousand years playing games with us you want to take over come on down
0: well it's again there's this war happening let me give you an example of of why i think we're looking at interdimensional not not aliens okay and this comes from a book called the book of daniel Um, it's a book that was written about 2600 years ago it's a glimpse into this other realm which we we only get you know small little glimpses little insights into it And basically, it's this—a little little backstory. This guy Daniel is a prophet, and he's in uh, Israel has been captured by the Babylonians, and and the temple's destroyed, and and Daniel, as well as all these other Israelites, are carted off to Babylon. And and Daniel's in Babylon, and he uh, he utters a prayer. He prays something. He utters a request. Right? This is the glimpse that we get. This heavenly being, which we call angels. All right. And which angel is from the word angelos, which just means messenger. So this messenger shows up in in front of Daniel. And when he does this, he just appears. So he's coming from out of nowhere, it seems, and just appears before Daniel. And this is what the angel says, and he gives us a glimpse of what's going on. He says, hey, Daniel, I was dispatched when we first got your what you requested. We got your request, because that's what a prayer is, okay? I'm trying to unhook it from all the religious trappings. You know, to get you just to listen to it without, you know, the churchianity and the religious nonsense that goes with it. Just listen to the story. But we have to uncouple it from all the preconceived notions. So this messenger shows up to Daniel, who, and Daniel has sent out a request. The messenger's there and said, hey, we got your request and I was dispatched 21 days ago. But I got held up by the Prince of Persia. This malevolent fallen angel couldn't get through. So I had to go back and get reinforcements and we, and here I am now. Which immediately begs the question. It sounds to me, and I'm, I'm you know, kind of speculating here, but it's, it's a calculated one. There seems to be a portal that these fallen angels apparently have control of. Because the first thing you would ask, why not just go around them? You know, why do you have to fight these guys? Can't you just fly around them? You know, miss them by a couple thousand miles and show up? Mm-mm. There's a portal apparently in that area of the world, and, and it was being guarded. By this entity called the Prince of Persia, by the way, I believe it that Prince of Persia has never been deposed. I believe it 's still in power over that area, and that portal still exists, so the angel gets reinforcements, the messenger gets reinforcements, they do battle doesn 't say how they do battle light, balls of light, energy, you know ray guns. I have no clue, but there's a battle. flaming swords, your guess is as good as mine there's a battle. he appears, talks to Daniel, and by the way, when these guys show up. The first thing that happens is human beings fall as dead to the floor. I mean, the the energy that these beings, both the malevolent ones and the benevolent ones, the good or the bad guys, it's the same thing. Somebody, and we can get into that because because uh, the, the Mothman and, and um, Lawrence Gray had an encounter, which I believe was a fallen angel. Same exact thing. It created fear. But the good guys will go up like this the good angel, let's say, or this good messenger, goes up to Daniel and touches him and says, be, you know, stand up. Peace be to you. Be of good cheer. Rise up. They're always trying to, okay, it's okay. Come on. Let's get up. Get up. Because just their presence is so overwhelming to us. And this is, you know, look, I've studied these things. And in every single case, human beings are either scared out of their wits or they fall down as if dead and the good guys come up and and restore them that's what they do immediately immediately restore the bad guys let's just do it so we see that from that that there's a glimpse into these interdimensional beings that they can pop through portals that there's this war that this battle going on we also know from prophecy You know, specifically from prophecy that things are coming on the earth which will cause men to faint from fear, that the deception that's coming will somehow set up a global one-world government and a global one-world religious system. So what is manifesting? What is manifesting now? We see UFOs all over the place to the tune between 300 and 600 per month, whereas go back 30 years ago, those numbers were less than that per year. So the phenomenon, in my opinion, is is real and burgeoning and not going away. I hope I answered some of what you were looking for there.
2: Well, here's the thing. It, would it be accurate if I stated that you have a strong belief in the polarity of good versus evil? So that, would that be an accurate statement? You believe that there's a battle between Absolutely. good and evil? Absolutely, very accurate. All right. Lion kills a gazelle. Is the lion good or evil? Wait, say that again. A lion kills a gazelle. Is the lion? How do you? What do you attribute to the lion? Is the lion good or is the lion evil?
0: He's acting as he does. He's, he's neither. He's acting. He's acting in the paradigm in which he's genetically created to act. He's, <clears> he's hunting for food. all right okay. That's what he's.
2: Survival. Like. Basically, what he's doing is he's engaged in survival. Correct. Right. Okay. So. When a human being, you or I, or a scientist, goes into the ocean, grabs the dolphin, takes it out. I know where you're going with this. I'm curious. Well, because if, if you're going to create a battle between good and evil, we need to have some reference points here. I think that's useful. And if you're going to make a statement that the creatures are coming here, and if they're grabbing a cow and removing its anus, part of its digestive system, removing its tongue, removing its eyes, you preclude the possibility of it being actual interest in terms of genetics. You're saying, no, that's not what it's doing. It's doing this specifically as a fear mechanism, right?
0: And, and let, me, let me address that. And the reason for that is, and, and this is interesting, if you have a technology that, that's, that's flying around um, at will with impunity, and these these beings, whatever they are, surely they would know. and they would have studied us enough to know our basic uh, basic, let's say fears, basic needs, basic wants. They would know that. I mean, wouldn't wouldn't you assume that? Sure. And what I see in the abduction phenomena constantly um, is people begin to the line between good and evil blurs, and then they say, well, these entities are above, above anything that we are, they're above our morals, they're above our ethics, and so I'm just going to go with it. And that, to me, is terrifying. The moment the moment you do that, that's exactly what the concentration camp guards did in, in, in the Third Reich, that somehow this is all okay. And the moment, you know, look, human beings, we know it, what good or evil is. We do. We know that. Taking an eight-year-old kid out of his bedroom at night, you know, and, and subjecting that eight-year-old boy or girl to, to sexual experimentation, that's evil. That's evil. I don't Absolutely. care who's doing it. That's evil. Absolutely. Okay, and that's what we're talking about. You know, taking someone's cow again. You know, stealing the cow and and carving it up and mutilating it and dropping it back. That's evil. And you know exactly. that's deliberate. It's deliberate.
2: No, 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 no. You're saying no as if this is a known. And I think if you were to state this as your opinion. You might be able to make a better argument. see, when you talk well, I mean, about... I mean,
0: I'm, I'm not saying
2: this is what it is. It's my opinion. No, but you, you keep saying we know. When we say we know, that's not an opinion. That's your saying. Well, let me... You know, sense. I
0: don't want to get bogged down in the semantics here. What I'm trying to state is, in my opinion, I believe that this is incredibly malevolent, and we do know that cows are being taken and they're being carved up and dropped in the farmer's fields. Now, in my opinion, that's a malevolent act. How about that?
2: Let's say that there is, and I'm not saying we know, Lynn. I'm just, we're just throwing stuff out on the table. On the Paracast, we don't claim to know what's going on. We're trying to ask honest questions here, okay? So we're not saying we know, we don't know. We know precious little. You seem to know a lot. So we're curious how you got there because that's that's of interest. Now, when you talk about why would these creatures, whatever they are, take a cow, remove part of its digestive system, remove its eyes, remove its, uh, its tongue, why don't they take it a couple of thousand miles away and drop it? Bingo. I come back to you and say, well, why would they? If if what you need are certain body parts, you take what you need and you dump the rest. And let me paint, again, a human paradigm for this so we can all understand what we're talking about. We know that there's a terrible, terrible commercial process, of commercial fishing. These wide sweep nets that go across the bottom of the ocean and they yank up pretty much all of the living stuff that's at the bottom of the ocean. They bring it up. We remove the few things that, that we we want, the shrimp usually. And everything else is dumped back overboard. It's not taken thousands of miles away. It's dumped right back where it came from, now dead. So what ends up being the, the reality of that? One, of a perception of efficiency. Because if all you're looking to get are the shrimp and you don't care about the rest of it, you dump the rest of the stuff back down, I'd make the argument that if I were a sentient being underwater, living under there, looking up, I'd say, those humans, that's just evil. How else can you justify that? Look at that. They just took everything along the bottom, and they killed most of it to get the little shrimp. I think that if I were a sentient being down on the bottom of the water looking up, I'd say, "Well, that's abject evil."
0: Do you think that that is an outrageous statement? No, I don't think it's an outrageous statement at all. But I also think that you're mixing. You're not. You're not really talking apples to apples here. You know, you're not. I, mean, oh, so. I, I understand that the, the point you're trying to make. And that right. puts into, you know, are those fishing practices, are they really beneficial to the environment? And my, my short answer to that would be, you know, no, they're not. Um, right. it's, it's a raping of the environment. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm not like a, you know, a, a gung-ho environmentalist. But what you just described is, is a practice which is, you know, it, it's efficient from an economic viewpoint. Uh, but eventually it, it will rob the ocean of the... Uh, of, of the the nutrients and and other fish that we need to survive and the ocean needs to survive so it's a short-lived but see what we're dealing with here is something else and and the cattle mutilation is just one facet of this phenomena when, when we start to look at the the cat and mouse game of let's say the crop circles or the alien abduction phenomena or the the implants is certainly another one, and and all the vast vast sightings all over the planet, which continues Some, something. It's ramping up to something. I mean, I think we can agree on that. It seems to be accelerating. It seems to be ramping up into something. It's a question of what paradigm you're going to fit it into. And I said, it. I believe that these beings, in my opinion, are very very malevolent. They're here to deceive. And when they do reveal themselves, this will cause, in my opinion, what I have termed to call the coming great deception. It will cause people to shift their worldview and shift that worldview in a matter of seconds because they'll be overwhelmed by what they see. Well, but if
2: they, at this point, are seeing a lot of solid evidence for the existence of these anomalous craft and whatever it is that's behind these craft, and we're just talking about this at the beginning of the show. I mean, we haven't seen a huge shift in public perception about this stuff, given, like you stated, the increased amount of media attention to it. And if we presume that that media attention is more serious and sober in nature, which is certainly an arguable point, um, one should perceive from that that people are taking the stuff even more seriously than ever. And I think you'd be hard-pressed to come up with proof of that.
0: Well, let me, let me ask you this. What is What are we inculturated with? Um, constantly. What are the movies we're, we're bombarded with? What about the movie Knowing? Have you seen the movie Knowing? No. Okay. The movie Knowing is is, is it could be a case in point for what I'm talking about because basically it attacks. Um, well, let me, let me put it this way. The movie Knowing is the Alien Gospel 101. It basically states that the extraterrestrial, or the so-called extraterrestrial, genetically manipulated us. They were responsible for all life on the planet, and we re, and we viewed them as the ancient gods. That ties in with what Zechariah Sitchin thinks, and uh, others of his ilk, uh, Eric Von and in another one.
1: Okay, and that was a day, recent movie with Nicolas Cage, right? Exactly. Okay.
0: And and the other one, Race to Rich Mountain, not, not as severe... But, again, it it, it it basically puts forth that idea that somehow we were seated here on this planet, you know, panspermia, you know, millions or thousands, tens of thousands of years ago, genetically manipulated by these so-called uh, extraterrestrials. And I'm saying that that goes against everything um, that I believe in and certainly would embrace. And the reason for that is, you know, it gets into prophecy, which can get a little, you know, kind of weird with people. But... There there are certain prophetic threads which talk about this coming great deception. And I think we're seeing it manifest now. And I believe that these beings are actually fallen angels masquerading as aliens, coming back to deceive and set up this one-world religious system, one-world government that the book of Revelation talks about, warns us of. And I think that's what we're seeing.
2: Well, I counter that with I believe we don't know anything about what's going on with this entire topic. We have nothing but questions. We have precious few clues. There are some clues to what's going on. I think one could certainly make the argument that these creatures, whatever they are, are technologically superior to us. I'm totally comfortable making that statement without attributing any sourcing to what the technology is or to how it works. Now, what you're saying is that the technology is in the hands of certain government operatives that are using it, with some agreement with these beings, uh, an exchange of human genetics or access to women, I guess, in exchange for this technology. And uh, I can back up my belief pretty strongly. I guess any, and when we're talking about beliefs, certainly we've said on the show many times, you can believe anything, and people do believe anything. But it, it's very important at that point to try to, in order to make, not even an argument, but... Uh, to make a point of um, of consideration, you have to back up beliefs with something a little more solid than you know talking about the things that you're talking about, and we're not going to disagree with certain statements you're making. Do these creatures have some sort of an ability to move interdimensionally? Well, one of the things we have to do is recognize that most people don't understand what the term interdimensional actually means. all right? It's a buzzword that gets thrown around, gets thrown around quite a bit. When you start to dig underneath of that, what do you come up with? Well, like Gene pointed out a little earlier, if you're going to move between star systems and do so with any degree of efficiency or pragmatism, you've got to figure out how to bend space-time. It seems to be the only way to make this doable. At that point, essentially, an interdimensional being, interdimensionality is a byproduct of an interstellar or even intergalactic propulsion system. So so when when you talk about interdimensional, you know, I think it's very important that you have to qualify what that means. And I don't know that you've done so yet, Lynn. I mean, you know, certainly we'd be curious. Well, let, me, if, let, me,
0: let me address that then. Are you, are you I just to want to tell you
1: before you start, Lynn, that we are going to break for the hourly split for the show in about three minutes. So we can introduce this in this segment and pick it up on the next one. Okay. Sounds good. So go ahead.
0: I would, I would address that by saying this, that, and I cited examples of let's say messengers popping in and popping out. That is what I refer to as interdimensional. They don't need a vehicle to do it. They appear and they disappear. We get that in the written record. Now, you can call that mythos, or or that can be, let's say, the the centrality of your belief system, or certainly the centrality of my belief system. To you, you may look at it and go, well, that's nice mythos, and there's you know, stories like that from other parts of the world. The thing that separates it, or the the dynamic that separates it, let's say, from any other mythos, would be the threat of prophecy. And that prophecy, some of it is thousands of years old, recorded in the Bible, and we see that prophecy, and we see some of that prophecy, you know, happening in our day. We see it actually written thousands of years ago and then happening today in the world. Um, I can give you several examples, and I'm sure you'll want those after the break. But we're talking about a system, a belief system, that I can't, you know, can I offer you proof that God exists? I really can't, but I can point to prophecy and say that there's an entity, a force, a being that seems to dwell outside our space-time continuum that somehow knows the future, and not in a sketchy way like Nostradamus, knows it with pinpoint specificity, and that's what I want to get into in the the second part, because that ties in the whole idea that what we're looking at here is a coming great deception, that these are not extraterrestrials, these are interdimensional beings, i.e. fallen angels, who can pop in and out at will.
1: Okay, before we split for the this part of the show, L.A. Marzulli, where does one get a hold of you and find out more about the things that you do?
0: Uh, go to my website, lamarzulli.net. There's links to the blog, the books, uh, to radio shows, archives, lamarzulli.net, lamarzulli.net, and it's all right there.
1: And by the way, when someone clicks on your name, when it's posted on the PowerCast radio show site at thepowercast.com, they will also be taken to your site, and, of course, you have... Such books as Politics, Prophecy, and the Supernatural, which we're going to get into. The Alien, involving interviews with people who have had reported experiences with alien beings. We'll have that a lot more coming up on the other side of the Paracast.
2: Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at That's news at and don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you've heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will, too.
1: Hey, neighbors, you can now give us a tweet on Twitter. Check out the Powercast at twitter.com slash powercast. That's twitter.com slash the powercast. Follow us and maybe we'll follow you. Welcome back to the powercast with Gene Steinberg and David Vietti. L.A. Marzulli joining us for the second part of our episode of the powercast. And you had mentioned, as we concluded with the discussion about beings popping in and out. Now, I'm going to drop the motion picture resemblance because we talk about that when we talk about the fact that we might be able to warp space or bend space or travel between dimensions to get from one distant location to another as they do it on Star Trek. Okay, so how about beaming down? So people beam down from a spaceship using their matter transformation or transmission device. Why do we assume it's anything else?
0: Well, I mean, look, you're you're talking Star Trek, and and I I wasn't there. Okay, I haven't I haven't seen one of these creatures pop in and pop out. Let's go to Lawrence Gray, who saw what I believe was a fallen angel, and Lawrence Gray would back me up on that. That's what he believes was a fallen angel. It it manifested in his room at 2:30 in the morning. He was overcome with fear. I mean, paralyzed with fear, and he began to evoke the name of Yahshua or Jesus in the Greek. And the moment he did that. The thing began to back off. In other words, he had authority in that. Now, I might be talking about stuff that you guys, you know, never traveled in and that's fine, we can get into it. But, you know, he was a believer. He had a certain worldview and a certain paradigm and he was the only person who saw this apparition that I'm aware of. And this goes back in 1966-67 Point Pleasant, West Virginia, when this thing was literally terrorizing a small town. And he had a victory over the thing. We also see from Joe Jordan's work where he's got over 300 abductees uh, on file um, that have come forward and have stopped the abduction by evoking the name of Yahshua or Jesus. Something is going on. And this this bolsters and points um, a spiritual dynamic or an interdimensional dynamic, which, of course, I adhere to. Um, So you're saying here,
1: wait a minute, you're saying here that if you know that you're in the process of being abducted, if you utter this word, suddenly it'll stop?
0: I am saying you're simplifying it. I am saying that he has on record over 300 people who have stopped their abduction. There's abduction. In fact, I'm actually trained to be an abduction counselor out here in L.A. and will probably do that. But there are people that have come on the record that have stopped their abductions by evoking the name of Yahshua or Jesus. It's the unwanted piece of the UFO puzzle which a lot of people don't want to look at because they immediately equate it with religion. And we're not talking religion here. We're talking about something else. Religion is the form of churches and buildings and popes and stained glass windows and all that. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about real supernatural uh, principles and spiritual warfare principles, which this guy put in the place he knew what they were. And the people who evoke this name are are not just throwing it out. There's a belief system that goes with it, and there's also an experience that these people have had which has changed their lives and that's what they're relying on and three hundred people which are documented um, in fact last year at Roswell Convention Joe Jordan when he announced this he had about a dozen people come forward and uh, you know living witnesses they ask him any questions you want so something's going on here which tilts it in in my direction in my opinion well
2: okay so we're gonna assume for a moment that those 300 people in that statistical pool were all Christian right I mean I think that's probably a fair statement I'm guessing there are not a lot of Buddhists or Jews in
0: there right? Well, here's the deal many of the people were not some of the people were in the beginning other people came to Joe when they found out about this mm-hmm. and they weren't Christians at the first and they wanted to escape and Joe sits him down and I like, look I'm, you know again I don't know what your belief system is or what you've seen I'm not talking some televangelist whacking somebody over the head of the Bible I'm not talking about that Joe sits them down and talks very specifically about the spiritual dimension, what, the, what these beings are, where they come from, and how it works, and how Yahshua, or Jesus, was able to get power back over them at the death on the cross with his blood, okay? That's what it comes down to, which is really the essence of the gospel. And some of these people then become Christians, and then, when, they're, when the abduction phenomenon starts, they have the tools to stop the abduction. And each one is slightly different. You know each story is different. some people they're paralyzed at first, and you know the, the abduction starts, and then they they're able to get the word out that you know Jesus helped me, and the abduction stops i mean it's so it's not like it's church people that that are Christians that somehow do this. These are people in in different forms of or, or have different belief systems, some are Christians, of course, but others aren't, and then later get the victory over the abduction phenomena by doing this, by getting counseling and learning what these entities are.
1: All right.
2: When you do analysis work in, in a situation like this, you always try to get an interesting pool to draw from. So when when you're talking about this, what occurs to me personally is that in the invocation of the name of Jesus, there's a certain emotion tied to it. And as you're saying that, I thought, well, do they ever just say God? Hey, God yeah, help yeah.
0: Many, many abductees and, and, and Dr. Jacobs will talk about this. People yell God, God, God all day long, nothing happens.
2: But Jesus works.
0: Yeah. But there's a reason for it. Why? there's a reason for it which see unless you study this and understand it and, and really understand what's going on and and the prophecies that that talked about the first advent his first coming and the prophecies that talk about his second coming and then when you strip it down and you move away and let let's just, let's just look at one of the stories let's just examine one of the stories sure. here's a guy in the ancient world by the name of Joshua that's his name in the Hebrew it's Joshua okay Jesus in the Greek Joshua is addressing a crowd five hundred 1,000 people, who knows, but many people were there. Lepers in the ancient world was an absolute death sentence. If you were a leper, first of all, you were ostracized from society. You had to walk around going unclean, unclean. We've all seen the silly movies, right? But it's true. And you watched your flesh literally rot on your body over a period of years. A dreadful, horrible way to die. The story is this. The mythos, to use you know, your word, would be this. And I agree, it's mythos. It's a story, but it's handed down and people have died for it. Anyway, let's continue. Yahshua is talking and these lepers from a distance go, have mercy on us, son of David, which is one of the titles that people gave him, son of David, okay? But all Jews were sons of David. That's how they were viewed, right, Mm -hmm. But a son of David also would be regarded as a king. So they're kind of, you know, throwing him a bit of a title there. And and have mercy on us. There are twelve of them. And Yahshua, you know, basically calls out and says, be healed. Instantaneously, the lepers are healed. Instantly. So we're talking about a miracle occurring on the subatomic cellular level where matter and energy is being manipulated in ways that we don't understand, if it's true. If it's true. In ways that we don't understand. Okay? That's the mythos. That's who we're talking about. That's the kind of power we're talking about. Let me give you one other example. There's a storm. On the Sea of Galilee, Joshua was asleep on the boat. It's one heck of a nasty storm. The guys who were with him in the boat are freaking out. Boat's taken on water, sails are ripped. They think the boat's going to capsize. They finally wake him up and go, you know, we're we're in trouble here. And he looks at them and he's, you know, he kind of, you know, says, look, you know, why why are you so afraid? Don't you have faith? And of course, I mean, that statement in itself is just like, whoa, you know, why are you saying that to me? The boat's sinking. Give me a break, you know. And he turns to the storm and addresses it and says two words, be still. And according to the account, instantly, not gradually, instantly, it would be like a, a, a fan—the plug being pulled, and then the blades stop, the wind stop, and the seas become calm. So that's that's two examples. The third example I'll use is this: there's a guy, and he's, he was a, he was a demoniac. He was possessed by by not only one demon, but by a legion, you know, and it's like hundreds and hundreds of these of these entities were actually in the sky. They would chain him. Uh, and he would break the chains and he would run around negative in the tombs and just basically terrorize the countryside Joshua shows up and by the way this is right after he calms the storm the boat finally lands where it's supposed to be he gets out and this this crazy wild de- demoniac comes up to him and and yahshua addresses him and says uh... you know who are you and they answer him and they say legion for we are many and they beg him they beg yahshua not to uh... cast them into the abyss they don't want to go to the abyss can we go into the herd of pigs and so Yahshua gives them permission they leave the man they go into the herd of pigs the pigs hurl themselves off the off the cliff and drown this of course causes great consternation in the town the man who was demon possessed is sitting at Yahshua's feet in his right mind For the first time in who knows how long So what we see is we see power over the elements With the example of the storm Power over matter and energy as we know it On the cellular level, subatomic level With the healing of the lepers And power over supernatural forces, i.e. demons That this man was was possessed with So surely we could agree And I may be taking too, too much of a leap of faith here I don't know That these are all benevolent action Would you agree with me on that? Are they account- that all? All of the actions they- that he just did, all these quote-unquote miracles, were benevolent. They were good things.
2: Well, personally, I'm a little hesitant to. No, just yes or no. I mean, are these good things? Yes or no? Again, you're, you're accusing Gene of oversimplification, but yet now you're engaging in it to Engage make in that lot. statement oversimplification.
0: No, no, not I'm not, not, it's not oversimplification, it's a simple yes or no. Is, is no, it's healing not, a leper who's, who's, who's dying of leprosy, you know, and, and, and casting out demons from a man and calming a storm so the boat doesn't sink, are these good actions? Yes or no? But if you're a leper and you're healed, is that good, yes or no? Let's put it that way.
2: If I'm a leper and a supposed person heals me, is that good? Yes. Yeah. Okay, that's, if, that's, if you're
0: in the boat and the boat's going to sink, right, is is right. that a good thing? And he stops, he stops the storm.
2: I don't know. I, I could think of people's thinking, well, no, that's probably not a good thing. Cause okay, I so was... you want
0: to drown and die? Is that what you're Is that what you're telling me? Maybe, you?
2: maybe I have a heavy tax burden and I don't want to live. <laughs> making, my, making my life but sucks. See,
0: see, you're being intellectually dishonest because you know where I'm going with this. I'm, I mean, it's, it's a simple no question. And we can certainly no, no, agree no, no, that no, these are good me. actions.
2: This is like me bringing up a movie. I'll uh, bring up any science fiction movie and ask, well, do you think that? No, a it's not, my thing? friend.
0: It's not, because it's steeped in prophecy. I'm just giving you the examples before I move into the prophecies, which we can talk about, which then I want to see what your answers to them. Sure. I'm, all ahead. I'm trying to get you to do is decide what's benevolent and or malevolent, and you won't go there, and that to me is intellectually dishonest. Oh, I mean, surely, as a human being, these three examples I gave you are benevolent good examples. I mean, a sixth grader would know that. Why can't you say either yes or no? If they're not, if they're not good, then say so.
2: I see. So now, now I'm a sixth grader.
0: No, Um, I didn't. I didn't say that. No, that's
2: that's great. No, no. But you see, I never said that. uh, and I are being. Gene and I, Gene and I are being very nice and polite here, but apparently that won't work. Okay, so go ahead with the prophecies.
0: No, all I'm asking, and I don't know why you can't give me a yes or no answer. Why can't you give me a yes or no answer to that?
2: I'm sorry. I don't know the words yes or no because I'm a sixth grader. I'm full of doubt.
0: You see, well, and, you're, and, now, now you're being cynical, and I'm just going to hang up and get off the show because all right, you're, hang not on, hang a, on. you're not giving me an answer okay. to a very tell you simple just, question. I'll tell you what, You've held my feet to the fire for the last hour, and I've given you answers. I've asked you one question: whether these actions of this mythos are good or bad, and you can't give me an answer. That, my friend, is intellectually dishonest, in my opinion.
1: Are you ready? To order the official Paracast t-shirt? You asked, we answered. We're now taking orders for the official Paracast t-shirt. It comes in white, 100% cotton. The front of it features the same logo that we have on our community forums. On the back it says, separating signal from noise. It's just 14.95 plus shipping in your choice of sizes. To order the official Paracast t-shirt, here's all you have to do. Visit our new online store at store.theparacast.com. One more time, that's store.theparacast.com. You can use a major credit card or PayPal to place your order for the official Paracast t-shirt.
0: Hi, this is Bud Hopkins, and you're listening to the Powercast with Gene Steinberg, David Jedney, and I completely enthusiastically endorse this program. It's an absolutely great program with opportunities to stretch out and talk.
1: We're talking to L.A. Marzulli, and he is an author, lecturer, and he studies UFOs and the paranormal. Let me ask you this. How about we rephrase the question, say... Do you consider it good or bad in whatever number of words you wish to use to express your opinion? How about we try it that way so we don't get into this yes or no? Fair enough? Whatever works. Okay. David? What I think is
2: irrelevant here, really, what I think is irrelevant, what I believe is irrelevant, I leave my beliefs at the table and I'm trying to engage in a conversation. See I, I, I don't know what I believe anymore, it's certainly not about this topic. At the same time, do I believe that when one is talking about the Bible and referencing it as a hard historical work, you know, do I believe that one can take that and now come to conclusions of sourcing of paranormal entities and events based on that? Do I believe that that's possible? I have a problem with it. Do I want to say yes or no? Uh, No, because I think that it would be intellectually honest to listen to various opinions and to take these opinions based on the context in which they're being delivered. So, do I believe the Bible is a work of hard history? Absolutely not. I don't believe that. So, my belief system, as it were, now comes into play in the discussion. So, to to explain why, if I'm asked, okay, so there is this character that does these things that appear to be benevolent. Do I believe they're benevolent? And my statement is, well if they're then used as an argument from which to propagate a belief system that has presented a tremendous number of problems for humanity, uh, I think it gets we get into grayer boxes here. But, you see, I don't bring preconceived notions to this discussion. I don't. And, Lynn, one of the reasons we want to have you on is I think we're very curious, and our listeners are very curious, to hear your position on this topic because we haven't done shows uh, delving into religious framework for this and you know, if you want to redefine religious you're more than welcome to but i think that on the paracast we've spent a lot of time talking about scientific foundations and principles certainly we're known for that in fact and we're trying to take these topics away from belief systems because again you can believe anything and that's fine there are people who will believe very well-known scientists who will come on and say I believe these things are extraterrestrial and they'll give you a long list of reasons as to why now if you know anything about the Paracast you know that we have presented a lot of arguments to those people we've become and we, we, we talk about Jacques Ballet. we we're one of the few shows Jacques Ballet has come on to in recent years to talk about this stuff and we certainly believe that there's a good possibility that there are multiple sources for UFOs and the beings that inhabit them. Now, one of the things that you're saying, if we're hearing you correctly here, is that you're saying all of, all of the malevolent interactions, and hey, based on the stories that I've heard, in fact, based on stories I've heard recently from someone I would consider to be a highly credible abductee, it's pretty clear that whatever is going on, I would say, is absolutely malevolent. Absolutely. Okay. Oh yeah. So,
0: so we we agree on one 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 aspect that the abduction scenario is malevolent. Thank you. But yeah. you guys have to understand that I'm not talking about, and I'm not trying to promulgate anything here. It's my belief system, and if if you know if someone wants to delve into it, they can believe they can delve into it. What I would point out is that the so-called Bible, and I'm not talking. You know, when I say that. I mean, again, you you know, you think pre... Well, we're talking Old Testament, New Testament. You have to
2: really get specific, right?
0: Well, both the Old and New Testament are a guidebook. And hear me out here, guys. It's a guidebook into the supernatural. It's a guidebook into the paranormal. If you were to take that element out of that book, there'd be nothing left. Very little Mm -hmm. left. A lot of genealogy and some history about battles and stuff. It's a guidebook into the paranormal. So all I'm using is an example of this entity, this person, who was on the planet, apparently, allegedly, 2,000 years ago, by the name of Yahshua, and I'm not talking the Pope or monks or stained glass windows or priests or bells or any of that nonsense, I'm talking about this is reportedly what he did, and I'm, I'm asking, posing the question, to me, in my opinion, all three acts are incredibly benevolent. Does that mean we can trust them? Eh, if I'm skeptical, I still want to see more. Sure. Absolutely. still want to see more, you know maybe, maybe you're doing that to suck me in just like you said. Maybe there's an ulterior motive here, but then you move into the prophetic which this particular same guy, Joshua Jesus, utters, and we see those things happening in today's world.
1: Let's go into that right now, the prophecies, all right? All right, How about we start with one prophecy? Take one prophecy that this person uttered and show us how this applies to something that's happening today. Specific, not something in general, like there will be wars, there will be famine, but something no, more specific. No, no, and,
0: and that's, see, that's like, you know, that's very general. Those things are very us. I'll give you a prophecy which has great specificity, and it says this. It says that Jerusalem... And this was written before the destruction of Jerusalem, okay? It was uttered, I should say, well before, about 40 years in advance of the destruction of Jerusalem. And we actually have records, written records, that dated the written records about, you know, eight years before the destruction of Jerusalem, which happened in A.D. 70. So that would put the document around A.D. 62. But the oral word from Yahshua was uttered around A.D. 33. So it's almost 40 years before the event. Yahshua tells us that Jerusalem will be destroyed That's the first prophecy, which we know has happened, but that's not the modern day. Then he utters something which is just unbelievable. He says, Jerusalem, which will be trampled over by the Gentiles, in other words, non-Jewish people, until the time of the Gentiles is over. He utters this prophecy and says, Jerusalem will be trampled over by non-Jewish people until the time of the Gentiles is over. So i do a quick brief history lesson, and I'll make it real, real quick. In AD 70, Titus the Roman general came in and laid siege to Jerusalem. Many people escaped the city before that. That's another story. It's a little sidebar, which I won't get into. The siege lasted well over a year. When they finally broke through the walls, over a million people were slaughtered. The rest of the Jews were carried off and dispersed into the Roman Empire. We know from history that a culture will remain about two generations before it's assimilated by the domineering culture, and then it loses all semblance of what it was so we see something first of all that is sort of enigmatic with the Jew that he's dispersed and yet somehow over the last two millennia almost two millennia he holds on to his his identity which is kind of bizarre when you think about it but here's what happens and this is the prophecy Jerusalem actually is trampled over by the Gentiles in AD 70 the Romans 614 the Persians 637 AD Caliph Omar in 1099 the Crusaders 1187 Saladin retakes it 1250, the Egyptian Marmalukes take it, 1517, the Turks, 1917, the British, finally, in 1967, the Israelis retake the city of Jerusalem, thus ending the time of the Gentiles. In my opinion, big on your line there, it would be like the Manhattan Indians going back what, 400 years today? They haven't been there for like, what, 400 years or something? They come back and they go, we want Manhattan back. There are no Manhattan Indians that I'm aware of. They're not there anymore. They've become extinct, unfortunately, which is a, another topic of discussion for another time, perhaps. If but, I'll it tell there. you
1: what, though, very frankly, if they came back and said we'll take Manhattan Island back, I think a lot of people would say, sure,
0: go ahead had five, take So that's one prophecy which has great specificity, which we see happening in 1967. First of all, Israel had to be regathered from the four corners of the, of the earth and reestablished in its ancient homeland. That's a prophecy known as Ezekiel 37, which is, again, very specific. It says that I will gather you from the four corners of the earth in the latter days and reestablish you in your ancient homeland, which is what happened in 1948. So we see Israel being regathered, reestablished in the homeland, and not until 1967 is Jerusalem finally under the control of the Israelis, which puts that prophecy into the fulfilled column. So that's just two.
1: All right, let's go to something that, as another example, that hasn't happened yet that might happen soon, because I know you're working on a project related to 2012 so do you have some more prophecies to lay on us
0: I do I do there's going to be war in the Middle East it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure that out and it's going to be from the Ezekiel 38 39 more I write about this in politics prophecy and supernatural in my opinion it's going to be a nuclear exchange the main player is may God which I believe could be this the former soviet republic known as Russia today and of course the second nation which is you know identified is Persia which is Iran and there's no doubt about that and we know historically the Russians uh, and the Persians have never been allies, and yet we see now that the Russians have just sold the Iranians the S-300 anti-missile system. The Iranians are close to producing a bomb. Uh, Ahmadinejad has saber-rattled continually about the destruction of Israel, calling it a cancer soon to be irradiated, and on and on and on. There's great vitriol between the two states, and frankly, um, with their nascent nuclear ambitions, the entire Middle East is sort of looking at Iran, and, and there's a, a bit of trembling, and not only in the in, in the in the halls of power in Israel, but certainly in Saudi Arabia and. Jordan. King Abdullah has come on, he's the king of Jordan, by the way, and said unless there's a a two-state solution, soon there's going to be a war in the region. Prophecy tells us, unfortunately, that this this war of Ezekiel 38 and 39 is going to happen, and that the armies of Gog and Magog will be decimated. They'll lose five-sixths of the forces. I believe that this will trigger supernatural events. I believe it will be a nuclear exchange. I believe that when we see this war, we'll look at it at CNN and the Fox News and every other channel in real time, and the world will be holding its collective breath. I also believe this is not part of the prophecy, but it could be a two-pronged attack in the sense that when they hit Israel, because they will go up against the land of unwalled villages, very specific prophecy, and it says in the latter days, in the latter days, I will come up against the land of unwalled villages in the latter days. Define
1: in the latter days. Is that in the latter days before the war begins or what?
0: Well, the latter days, in my opinion, would be pointing again towards the end of time as we know it, the end of history as we know it, and and i think we're kind of in in those days simply because israel is is the timepiece which starts the whole prophetic clock clicking, and once Israel's been reestablished in its land in 1948, then everything else begins to, to follow suit. You can also make a strong case that right around that time, certainly after World War II, we might not want to go there, so stop me if, if, you know, if you don't want to get into this. But you can, you can make a real strong case that the emergence of the food fighters over Nazi Germany and World War II could be, in my opinion, tied to what I believe is a Luciferian sacrifice to the tune of like 12 million people gassed and, and slaughtered in, in the oven. It was very deliberate. Hitler and, and the occultists who were operating in you know, Hitler's sure third right knew what they were doing, and they opened up a portal. And that's why we see the Foo Fighters. So it's interesting how modern ufology sort of, you know, I'm kind of broad brushing here a little bit. Okay, but you're saying basically that
1: acts of unspeakable cruelty somehow open up a dimensional rift?
0: Green Beckley, otherwise known as Mr. UFO, reporting live for the Conspiracy Journal. And we have a special offer for the listeners of the Paracast. Want to receive our publication for free? Conspiracy Journal and Bizarre Bizarre sent to you via snail mail. And all you have to do is email me at Mr. UFO at WebTV.net That's M-R-U-F-O at WebTV.net and we'll send you two of the most exciting publications, but we do need your actual address because these are physical publications, and you'll enjoy all the latest articles by some of the leading researchers in the field, as well as up-to-date information on the latest books and videos. And it's all for free. Or drop us a line, Mr. UFO at WebTV.net. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the pair
1: We're talking to L.A. Mazzouli, and we're discussing now biblical prophecies and otherwise, but we'll get to that. Now, you're saying here that you could basically slaughter people and change the dimensional construct?
0: If you go back and you look at the Babylonian religious system, and you look at the ancient world, and you look at the Mayas, what do they all have in common? Blood sacrifice and there's a reason for it. There's a reason why these cultures immerse themselves in human sacrifice, which again points to the paranormal slash supernatural. The Bible is full of this stuff and talks about it with great elaboration. Who, who they are, who they're sacrificing to, that these are in, in essence uh, fallen angels. They, they are entities. They are principalities in high places which have control. It goes back to that little example I cited in the first The segment when Daniel has that visitation by the angel and the angel says, Hey, I have to fight the prince of Persia. There's a war going on. It's an unseen war, in my opinion. The Bible tells us about this. We don't see it here, per se, but now it's it's beginning to manifest as the supernatural or the paranormal begins to interface with our reality. That's why we're seeing more and more, you know, sightings. But getting back to the point of the Holocaust, yes, this was a Luciferian, deliberate, Luciferian, satanic blood sacrifice. It was absolutely one of the most uh, heinous events ever recorded on the planet. I could also make a strong case that the 50 million aborted babies in the United States uh, is essentially the same type of, of blood sacrifice, which is why perhaps we're going through what we're going through today. We'll see.
1: Oh, okay. So if we do horrible things, we bring forth horrible creatures.
0: That's kind of oversimplification. I'm saying that, that for those who travel in, in let's say, occult circles, with the Holocaust, who know about the Holocaust and know uh, the ideology behind the leaders of the Third Reich, this was very, very deliberate, which is why the, the trains to the death camps had preeminence, I should say, I guess, over troop trains at, in the closing days of the war. I mean, it was just, it was this rabid idea of bloodletting, of blood sacrifice, just absolutely horrific but it was very deliberate and it deals with things that are again supernatural why is it that when someone says the blood of Jesus during an abduction does it stop the abduction See what I'm talking about here? We're in the stuff that it's supernaturally and paranormally. Okay, well, you're assuming something
1: based on one particular researcher's investigations. That has not been part of most of the lexicon of abductions, that people will utter some religious phrase or the name of Jesus or whatever, and suddenly the abduction stops. That's something that is more unknown that you've brought to the table with this discussion because when i read the works of people like bud hopkins and others i don't see that coming out
0: well because bud hopkins has never tried that he doesn't operate from that paradigm Jordan, who was not a Christian by the way, when he when he was a MUFON director, he wasn't a Christian in the beginning. He became a Christian uh, actually because he ran into an abductee who who talked about this, and he began to examine the the supernatural aspects of it, and later on became a Christian and then realized he calls it the unwanted part of the UFO puzzle, and in some ways he's being censored, and literally he is being censored. Most people don't want to hear it because it conjures up the religious aspect and a lot of people have a problem with religion and I have a problem with religion too just so you guys know but I don't have a problem with a benevolent being like Yahshua you know who seems to you know, heal the sick walk on the water stop the storm and cast out demons that that, that, I find that pretty exciting I find that I I wouldn't mind spending more time if I could go back in time with with that type of a being I find them very benevolent very wonderful
1: lay another prophecy on us I will
0: we have a conundrum in the Middle East, all right, which you know and I know that once I tell you this, you're going to say there's no way this is ever going to happen, on the uh, what is believed to be the Temple Mount in Jerusalem where, for the Israelis, for the Jews, the ancient temple, which, by the way, was one of the an- wonders of the ancient world. I mean, this thing was just amazing. A 48-acre complex, and the thing reached uh, over over four stories tall and was lined with limestone and gold. And I mean, the thing was just amazing to look at. Of course, all that was destroyed in A.D. 70, and literally not one stone is left upon another. There's a prophecy that states in the latter days, again, towards the close of history as we know it, that the temple will be rebuilt. That the temple will be rebuilt. The absurdity of that prophecy is that Ariel Sharon, a Jew, set foot on the temple mount unannounced several years back and it immediately started Arafat, another in, intifada, which, you know, thousands on both sides were killed just for setting foot unannounced on the temple mount. So the idea is that the Muslim world is going to allow a temple to be built. On their second most holy site is just, it's crazy. It's absolutely crazy. Prophecy tells us that that's going to happen. Prophecy also tells us that the person responsible for building, who cuts the deal with the Israelis, is none other than the Antichrist. So if we're still around, and you hear that somebody is, is making a deal, and I'll get into that in about a second, with the Israelis and the Muslim world, to allow the Jews not to tear down the Dome of the Rock or destroy the um, Al-Aqsa Mosque, nothing. The temple Mount's 40 acres. Plenty of room for a little temple in there, right? Plenty of room to build it. In fact, the Israelis actually have cut the stones and have many of the implements they need to begin animal sacrifice again, because that's what they're still under. That's what they believe in. So, the guy who does that is the Antichrist. Here's what's interesting. There's one person in the Muslim world who actually has control over the Temple Mount. That's King Abdullah of Jordan. He also is a Hashemite. Hashem is the the uncle of muhammad and the hashemite because he's a hashemite king he has a direct lineage to the prophet muhammad so he holds great sway in the muslim world if something happens to the temple mount they call the king of jordan and jordanian archaeologists or or, masons or whatever are, are called to repair it so he's the only guy on the planet that i'm aware of at any rate that can cut that deal with the muslims at the same time the Jews and allow the Jews to rebuild that temple whoever cuts the deal whether it's the king of Jordan or someone else he would then be the Antichrist
1: okay are all these prophecies that you're pointing to related to Middle East developments of one sort or another
0: these the ones that I'm talking about specifically that are not filled fulfilled let's say in our day and age have to do with with the seven-year period called the time of Jacob's trouble which deals specifically with Israel And deal specifically with the Middle East, but it says also that Jerusalem will be a compass trembling to all the nations in the latter days, and that's exactly what we see. What do we have just this week? We got the Pope over there telling that we need a two-state solution. We got Obama saying exactly the same thing. We got King Abdullah of Jordan saying that unless there's a two-state solution, there's going to be a war within a year. I mean, that prophecy we're seeing unfold right before our eyes go back 200 years ago wasn't true wasn't true jerusalem was not a cup cup of trembling of the whole world now all eyes are focused on that because there's so much at stake there's so much at stake two words
2: confirmation bias we've had a lot of people on the show and when stanton friedman comes on he has an extraterrestrial hypothesis Mm -hmm. that he defends the death and he'll hear nothing that even vaguely Contradicts it. Nothing. Recently, I had dinner with Bud Hopkins and a couple of other lovely people, and I was telling Bud about a paranormal experience I had involving a full body apparition. Oh, well. Oh, yeah. Uh, With someone else, a co witness. And among other things, we watched this uh, full body apparition dematerialize. And um, Bud, who's a lovely man, I very much like him, said, Well, you know, uh, during abduction experiences, there are these screen memory things, and things don't appear as they are. I said to him, "Bud, you're trying to tell me that this was a screen memory of an abduction experience." And he looked at me and smiled. So, in Bud's worldview and in, in his belief system, he has come to feel that pretty much anything that falls into that general bucket—you know, we, we saw this full-body apparition, distinctly human-looking, though a little little disturbing beyond that—and people have heard the Paracast, uh, know what I'm talking about. Bud had to fit it into his worldview, as Robert Anton Wilson would call it, his reality tunnel. And um, when people spend a long time, significant amount of time, interpreting the world through a specific set of filters, basically, and humans, all humans do this, they will basically perceive and map everything into a reality tunnel that only takes into account what they need to do in order to reinforce their worldview. Now, Lynn, you've been very honest in saying that everything that you're talking about, you're couching in a belief system that these entities, whatever they are, you feel that they're fallen angels and that they um, somehow they want to harm us, though I, I'm not yet totally clear on where the harm portion comes in. I'm going to want you to elaborate on that. But... In in what you're painting, essentially we have something where it's the human soul that's being fought for, right? I mean, is that sort of the the prize? What's the prize here? The, these entities that are deceiving us, what did they? They have to have a motive. What's in your opinion? What's their motive? You you just you just told us
1: exactly what the motive is. That's it, the human soul. But why play this out over a period of two or three thousand years if yeah. they want our soul, just take it. But they can't
0: they can't do it they have to listen and you know this from from I'm sure you guys have interviewed like indigo kids that show up right at people's houses they have to ask permission don't they to come in they just won't come in i mean how creepy is that and and they can't like look the entity i don't know anything about your background or anything but you've opened a door if something materialized and there's a witness, you've got a door open somewhere and I'm willing to bet that the, that the apparition or something like it will happen to you again because you got a door open someplace. If you've seen something once it'll happen again Guar- I guarantee it almost. you know I'll, I'll you know call me up and when it happens we'll talk because it will happen again you'll definitely see something like it again if not the same entity another entity. Was it benevolent or malevolent or didn't you make a judgment?
2: Ah, now that's an interesting word you just chose. Did I make a judgment? Wow. No, I wouldn't be so presumptuous as to make a judgment. What I actually uh, described in the show where I talked about this was that I had a distinct impression of sadness. Now, that impression I'm willing to state was probably largely a function of my perception of A., whatever the body language was of this thing, it was a girl in terms of it looked like a girl, Mm -hmm. but I do not attribute malevolence or benevolence. I work very hard to try to see the world in a non-polar context. I believe that polarity is a byproduct of the physiology of our brains and is a limiting factor in our perception of reality. So... I I don't attempt to paint things in broad strokes because broad strokes make for pictures that lack detail. I I try to look at things in a more subtle way. And in that particular instance, I had a perception of sadness. Now, does my perception of that sadness amount to anything other than a perception I had at the time? Mm, Maybe. I mean, I had a strong sense of that, but uh, I wouldn't... I absolutely would not attribute malevolence or benevolence because again I'm I'm a firm believer in the idea that when you talk about good and evil or even malevolence or benevolence that um, one has to understand a larger framework a a, a meta view if you would Mm -hmm. and so if we talk about for example entities that are somehow extracting genetic material from humans do I believe that there's a good possibility that's happening yeah there seems to be a definite possibility that that's happening at the same time uh, scientifically I know that in many ways human beings have been doing this with lots of other life on the planet for many many years now does that do I attribute that reality of humans. I mean, you know, we talk about manipulating genetics. I mean, my God, humans have a, a multi-hundred year history of manipulating genetics. I mean, look at dog breeding. Look at all of the, the, the work in terms of manipulating the genetics of plants over, over again, more than just the last 20, 30 years. It's sure. a long history of this. So am I willing to attribute, am I willing to make a judgment call there and attribute malevolence or benevolence to those actions? Uh, No, I actually am willing to take an objective view and say that is done as a process in terms of the the will to survive. And so when I think about a non-human entity extracting genetic material from humans, and I look at the the vast variety of life on this planet, it's my suspicion. I'm not willing to say I know this. There's not a lot that I do know. And, And actually, the longer I look into this topic, the less I feel I do know. But I'm willing to have a strong suspicion that the Earth is very likely of deep interest to a lot of different entities in terms of genetic diversity on the planet. Maybe there's something special about that that, you know, might not be centered on the human soul. It might be centered on the genetic diversity of the planet. Now, we have a pretty good handle for the fact that this planet offers a wide, wide number of life forms and a genetic diversity that I'm willing to state I suspect is rare in this vast universe. Is there life on other planets? I think anybody at this point who believes that there isn't life on other planets is in a very deep state of denial.
1: Fate Magazine is proud to be celebrating its 60th anniversary and its 700th issue. That's 60 years of bringing you true reports of the strange and unknown. Keep up with the latest on angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, life after death, and much, much more. It's bigger and better than ever. Subscribe now by calling one 800 728 or online at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. Before My we friend. deny anything else, L.A. Marzulli <laughs> joining us on the Paracast, and we're talking about the state of reality. And another thing about UFOs that David and I have talked about is the fact that UFOs can confirm your expectations. So if you expect them to be something or other, quite often that's what they'll be. So if you think it's going to be the race between gods and demons, etc. Maybe that's what you're going to see. But if you expect to see blonde-haired Venusians, well, Venus might not be a good place for blonde-haired anything to live, but maybe you'll have that experience. Now, and let me just make one statement before we let Lynn respond to that. If I were a being
2: hanging around this planet for thousands of years, intimately familiar with the life forms on the planet, watching how their history evolves if it were me and I'm not trying to say that these things had anything even resembling human motivation but if it were me I would find ways to indoctrinate myself into the religious systems of the planets just for the purpose of being able to on an emotional level because it's pretty clear that humans are not the intellectual beings they like to think they are but are really more emotional beings that from time to time are constrained by their intellects. But otherwise, for the most part, let intellect fly out in the wind and do things on highly emotional motives and with highly emotional frameworks. If I were intelligent beings looking at that for my money, what I would do is I would very much want there to be a perception that I was some sort of a... Much more powerful creature than I actually was because it would let me have a higher degree of control over the beings that I was interacting with. But but that's just me.
0: Well, you know, you, you raise some interesting points, and I think. Um, if, in, in, in my 30 years of, of, of walking this and, and experimenting with it and looking at it, um, this paradigm has never failed me and this worldview has never failed me and certainly the prophecies I've mentioned while you can dismiss them, um, again I, I go back to the idea that these things were written thousands of years ago and we see them happening in real time and when that Ezekiel 38-39 war happens and when the temple is again announced to be rebuilt you know, I mean, at some point, or let's, let's put it this way, if it was 100 years ago, and I said, at some point in time, Israel will become its own nation. It will be gathered from the four corners of the earth and reestablished in its ancient boundaries. You'd look at me and say, Lynn, you're nuts. You would. Well, the years- problem
2: is, when you say the four corners of the earth, mm-hmm. then I would respond to that and say, well, actually, really the creation of the state of, of Israel came out of the horrors of the Second World War, and that, but predominantly and and certainly, it's it's accurate to say that the vast majority of of the early settlers, the early Zionists, that went into What's Israel. Your- we all Europe. Yeah, it was yeah, all Europe. Uh, so so I'm, I'm not
0: arguing. I'm not arguing yeah. that. But now we also see Jews from Ethiopia, Jews from China, Jews from Russia, you know, Jews from the Americas. So it is. I mean, they're being. It's somewhat poetic, four corners of the earth. But it actually is fulfilled because it is from the four corners of the earth. Every place, you know, Elias is taking place from from the four corners of the earth. I mean, that's. I think you would. Well, to I'm
2: that. also someone. I again, as someone who, try, tries to be intellectually honest. The, the, even the term four corners of the earth, the earth doesn't have corners.
0: Well, again, it's, it's a, it's, it's a you know, spherical it, it, body, it, so, yeah. <laughs> See, well, I know. This is where I'm at, guys. It's like, I, w- I went through the new age system. All right, I, w- I had a guru, I had my third eye open. I had a lot of paranormal stuff happen to me, okay, in, in my teens. And I sought answers for it. You know, I mean, I was looking. I was looking for some sort of paradigm, some sort of worldview, which seemed to work. I mean, I had a guru. Like I said, my third eye was open. I heard celestial music. I mean, I've had a lot of different paranormal experiences. I've watched a guy bilocate right in front of my eyes, you know, Mahatma, do that. I've seen some stuff, you know. Um, I've heard and seen, you know, voices coming from walls that, that just, there's no way, in broad daylight, that there's no way that you hear that, yeah, I hear that. Where's that coming from? I don't know. You know, I mean, freaky, freaky stuff. And it led me to, on a quest. I mean, it led me on a quest. And not till I, you know, accepted Yahshua until I was born again. And that, that's, again, I say that and that's a horrible connotation because, you know, you see televangelists with the funny hair and the book and the whole deal. Not what we're talking about you're talking about a supernatural experience that happens to people that was promised way back in the first century, which is the reason why he came in the first place. And so, yeah, I have a worldview, and I'm entrenched in that worldview, and I operate within that paradigm, in that worldview. I'll certainly, you know, freely admit it. We'll have to wait and see who's right. And the deal is this. When you begin to have experiences like what you're having with that entity, I really don't know, you you detected sadness, and that's okay, that's something. If the entity begins to appear, just a couple words of caution, whatever you do, don't embrace it, in my opinion. I, I would not invite it. I would not try to embrace it. Uh, you know, if someone knocked the analogy is this, if someone knocks at your door at 3 in the morning, you, you know, you, who are you, what do you want, and what's going on? You need to test the spirit. That's sort of like spiritual warfare 101 stuff. You need to test the spirit and find out what it is and, and what it's about. From my viewpoint, the, the paradigm, the worldview that makes the most sense with what we're looking at with the UFO phenomena and all of its different dimensions, Crop circles, cattle mutilations, abductions, you know, the the forced pregnancies, the genetic manipulation, the vast sightings, we are on the verge of a coming great deception. There's a prophecy, I'll give you one more, which ties into this, and it really begs a few questions. It says that let no man deceive you, that the son of perdition, another name for the Antichrist, by the way, will not be shown, will not be revealed until the great falling away happens, until this, the Greek word is apostasio, which means apostasy, which begs the question, what could cause millions of people all across the world to somehow abandon one particular worldview for another? And what other worldview would they then embrace? And if, if UFOs weren't manifesting like they are and and what the abductees or some of the abductees are talking about that they created us and they are you know uh, progenitors and all that then i wouldn't be talking about that i'd be looking for something but that's precisely what is happening and that's precisely what we are hearing from some of the abductees. that this is what they're claiming that um, they created all the world's religions that they're responsible for all the miracles of the old and new testament and on and on it goes again going back to zechariah section and, and others of his ilk. that's kind of what they believe ancient aliens uh the program on the history channel I'm saying that the coming great deception that I just talked about in 2 Thessalonians, and Thessalonica was a town in Greece, and it's a letter okay it's the second letter that this guy wrote hence the title second thessalonians so there's nothing spiritual about that at all you know it's just a letter in a town in greece and the guy was writing about this thing they said that the antichrist won't be revealed until the apostasy happens we also know from the book of revelation that there'll be a one more government and one more religious system which again begs the question how do you get people with diverse faith to abandon that faith and, and buy into this global religious system. And in my opinion, when you look at movies like Knowing and Race to Which Mountain, this is what's being promulgated. This mm-hmm. is becoming great deception. It will right, so be seen who's right.
2: You're on very, very, very shaky ground.
0: Could be. If
2: you're using those movies as an example of some sort of cultural programming, because meanwhile, there is this harsh reality that right now, if we look at the current economic, the current political, the current religious state mm-hmm. of this planet, I think we're about as far away from a one-world anything as you could possibly get. We're seeing... Obviously, I disagree. Well, okay. You know, there's a there's over a billion Chinese right. that would tell you that everything you're saying is absolute nonsense to them. There's a billion of them.
0: And, would say, and here's the deal, is, guys. You know, I've I've said this stuff before, it's going to happen. When we start to see it, have me back on the show. When we start, look, I'll I'll tell you something which I found fascinating. I think about a month ago, um, Sarkozy of France, Merkel of Germany, and former Prime Minister Tony Blair, all together, the three of them, were talking about we need some sort of a new world global financial system. Now that's what they're saying. And those of us who travel in this prophecy, look at that. We're being herded. We're being moved into this New world order, this one world government system, which the Bible and prophecy talks about. And what's the one event that could really make it happen? A war in the Middle East, followed by a revealing of the so-called extraterrestrial presence. The war in the Middle East, let me finish with this. The war in the Middle East, when it happens, not if, when. When the Ezekiel 38 war happens, and it will happen, and those nations that I mentioned, and read the prophecy yourself, you, you'll get the whole list of the nations. Those nations will come up against the land of unwalled villages, which is what Israel is. And by the way, in the ancient world, there was no such thing as a, a land of unwalled villages. The first thing you did is build the highest wall and you know moats and the whole deal, because that's how they lived in the ancient world. Of course, all that vanished with the advent of the airplane. So the prophet 2,600 years ago is telling us in the future a land of unwalled villages which until modern times was just an absurd statement to make. Now we see it's a reality. The point I'm trying to make is when this war happens in the Middle East, it will create collectively the greatest fear factor that this planet has ever known. And what I've said that I believe, at least from my paradigm, my worldview, which you guys may disagree with, and that's fine as long as it's civil, (laughs) that, that that fear is the currency of the Luciferians. That's what they move in. That's what they try to manipulate. That's how they manipulate us. That's what they move in. They move in fear. That war in the Middle East will create the greatest climate of fear the world has ever known. That's what uh, will materialize.
2: But again, if you've got to be intellectually honest, you have to acknowledge the fact that that same tactic of fear was used by the Catholic Church for the last 2,000 years to control whatever portions of the world they could. Fear and, and, is always... And you easy. know what I say
0: to that? You're 100% right, my friend.
2: Yeah. And, and I bet you didn't expect me to say that. Did it you? Doesn't, prove any, but doesn't prove anything. It just proves that fear is a way to control humans. We well, yeah. know that. Right. But, but meanwhile, but, fear yeah. is, in, in the face of the unknown, humans exhibit, I think, I believe, and I'm not a psychologist or psychiatrist, but there's a sense of wonder and a sense of fear and they try to balance each other out but ultimately our fears really dominate every aspect of who we are so you know that's always true and when you paint the idea of UFOs as fallen angels demonic beings who are attempting to control us and control our souls because somehow I guess in a human centric point of view in the vast universe Our souls, as tarnished, as crippled as they they tend to be, are somehow the ultimate prize. I don't know. I I try to become more objective and step outside of myself and see that as uh, something that's putting humans on a pedestal that I don't know that we've achieved. But that's just my own
1: personal worldview. I think also, just to echo kind of what David says here, maybe we're ascribing ourselves too much self-importance that we amount anything in this vast universe where we are already getting a sense of the fact that there are possibly thousands, millions of planets that are inhabited by intelligent beings, and we're just one anthill out of millions or billions. Now, before we let you go, do you do public appearances that you can tell us about?
0: Yeah, I've got a couple coming up. I've got one in Mansfield, Ohio, on June uh, 6th. uh, I'm the keynote speaker. Of the conference is called Politics, Prophecy, and the Supernatural. It's, it stems right from my book and some of the things that we talked about um, today, well, all the things that we talked about today, but it, it'll be, you know, I'll be able to just go for like two hours and, and try to lay it down, and then it's up to the listener to decide, you know, what they want to believe or embrace or not embrace. I'm not here to hammer anybody over the head. It's just this is what I've discovered. This is what I believe is uh, in operation, and so that's what we'll be talking about. Then, of course, on July 3rd in Roswell, or i'm much of the dates, is, I think it's the 3rd, the 4th, the 5th of July, I'll be flying in the Roswell and I open up that conference there it's actually a Christian symposium on UFOs and they've, uh, collected a bunch of us. It should be really fascinating. And then on Sunday there's a panel discussion. I won't be on the panel. I'll have pre-recorded answers for that because I have other commitments I have to attend to. But I will be speaking at Roswell on on July 3rd. So.
1: Okay. And the books are politics, prophecy, and the supernatural. And I think and we've the
0: alien it. interviews
1: and the alien interviews. And the latter is one that you sent to us. The former we haven't on, read yet. You, but I guess we got a sense of it here.
0: Yeah. Did you guys ever read the uh, Shroud of data on the on the back of the book? Did you ever check that out?
2: I've done a lot of research into the Shroud of Turin, and I'm on the fence.
0: Because so what was interesting, you know, in all the stuff that we've covered today, the Shroud of Turin, you know, in in my opinion. Speaks of a physics which we know nothing about. If you get a chance, read, read with, um Dr. Wanger's interview in, in the back of that book. It's just fascinating. Something's going on with the shroud. And in my opinion, it's, it's the real deal. It's the genuine article. And for your listeners who might not know this, just fairly recently they discovered that the, the carbon dating was, it came out with a, a 14th century forgery. That's what they, because of the carbon dating, it tested way too late to be the authentic route of torrent from two thousand years ago so this one scientist went back and looked at it and looked where they took the samples and lo and behold they took the samples from where they patched end-to-end splices and he has photographs of this on the site end-to-end splices of the thread which were done by the poor sisters of Claire, that's where they took the one only one sample, which is kind of amazing because beforehand they had agreed three different samples, three different parts of the shroud, and one, one control sample, and they didn't adhere to that. They took one sample from one part of the shroud, and guess where they took it from? The part where the poor sister's of Claire did the reweaving end-to-end splices with the thread. I'll tell you what,
1: this is going to have to be it. That's another discussion for another time. We can check out L.A. Marzulli's content at net. Thanks for joining us this Thanks week. for having on the Paracast. Thank you. The Powercast with Gene Steinberg and
2: David Bietany is a production of Making the Impossible Incorporated. Join us
1: next week for a new adventure in the Paracast.